Yeah, talking about uh, in training, little minister in training. I was told when we first came and interviewed here, if they didn't hire me, they would have hired Liberty. So I think she's got a good career ahead of her. And Alethea apparently wants to sing and is a little jealous. She can't quite yet. That's the only thing I can explain. Babies never cry, right? But I want to ask you, what's the difference between a normal person and a person who does extraordinary things? Somebody who does amazing things and then just an ordinary person. Just, just keep thinking about that. But is there some unique quality of people who go on to do extraordinary things? Is there something born in them that makes them be able to do great things where everyone else just seems to have a normal life? Are they, are they better than the average person? Or even thinking on that same line of thought, are there different classes of people? Are some people born to do mundane, boring things? Are some people born to go on and do great things? You know, Jesus, when he was on the earth, he was a bit of an eccentric guy, you could say. He kind of went against some of the, uh, some of the norms of the day. And no one could argue, even those that, uh, that don't believe that he was God, would argue that he didn't do amazing things. Even if they don't ascribe uh, the miracles that he did, so many that they didn't even bother to write them all down, they still said he was an amazing teacher. And even those that are against religion or against God, they still would say Jesus was this great teacher. So there was something about him that they would say he was great. But the, uh, one of the amazing things that we had about him is that he was a great teacher and that also he had an ethic of love. He told people, love your enemies. That's something that resounds with people even this day. But do you know that why we have Christianity these days, why we still have this faith that we have that's based off of this Jesus? Because Jesus, even being a great teacher, his teachings shouldn't have survived, really, or they shouldn't have been uh, expounded as much as they did. But the reason that we have Christianity and that we have a room full of lots of people here this morning that would say that I'm a follower of Jesus We have that because Jesus picked normal, ordinary people to proclaim the message of truth and hope. Jesus didn't choose these amazing people. He chose everyday, normal people. People that we wouldn't have expected or that we wouldn't have chosen ourselves. 2,000 years later, we have a church here in Penticton because of these men that Jesus chose. And so who were these people? that did this extraordinary thing. That's what we're looking at today. We're looking at the people that Jesus chose to be his followers and his disciples. And they weren't amazing, religious, devout people. They weren't powerful politicians. They weren't necessarily charismatic or eloquent. And they weren't trained speakers. In fact, the most extraordinary thing about these men is just how ordinary they were. And the amazing thing that we have and the truth that we'll keep coming back to today is that Jesus calls ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And that's, that's hope-filled for me because I wouldn't go and point to myself and be like, I'm anything but normal. I'm just normal. I'm an ordinary person. And yet, through Jesus, we can do extraordinary things. So last week, we've started our series on the life of Jesus And I mentioned that we're going to be experimenting, and you all are forced to go along with that experiment with me because I'm the one with the microphone. 
but we're going to be experimenting how we go through Mark. And so we're going to kind of be bouncing around a little bit. And today we're looking at uh, the call of his disciples. And we're going to be looking at three different passages. So I'll try not to get bogged down. I want to get to the main points of these because each of these could easily be a sermon in itself. But we'll be looking at these and seeing the principles that's behind who Jesus called to be his disciples. And so in Mark 1, 16 to 20, I'll be reading out of the uh, 2011 NIV, which is on the screens behind me, uh, nice easy. Or if you guys have a hard copy Bible with you or a pew Bible you'd like to follow along, that would be great. Or even an iBible if you have one on your phone. So Jesus, uh, in Mark 1, 16 to 20, let's look what it says. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he, called, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and followed him. Last week I talked about how Mark has kind of a, this unique writing style. He likes using phrases immediately and uh, tried to create in his writing the sense of urgency. But he has a purpose behind it because he shows that Jesus would say something and people obeyed right away, immediately. And so imagine this, one day walking beside the Sea of Galilee, or as that should be more aptly called the Lake of Galilee, because I looked it up on Google to, to talk about it, and I've talked to somebody that was there that has seen it. It's, it doesn't seem like a sea. We think of a sea as being this huge, uh, this huge body of water, and they would have uh, storms there. But in comparison to Lake Skaha, or Skaha Lake, it's actually quite similar in depth, and uh, it's actually about the same, uh, same length, but it's about... Uh, it's about twice the length, sorry, and it's about six times as wide. So it's kind of this almost round lake, whereas Skaha is really, uh, really skinny. So if you can imagine, just not that much bigger than Lake Skaha is the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus is walking along here, and he runs into two different sets of fishermen that were brothers, uh, two sets of brothers, and uh, sees them fishing and immediately calls them. Now, I want to give a little bit of background for discipleship here. Discipleship is this fancy word that we now use to say followers after Jesus. Jesus would say, uh, be disciples, make disciples. But this is something that was uh, part of the Jewish religion. But the way that it would work is they would have a teacher, a rabbi, and students would go to him and ask if they could be his disciples. It was unheard of for the teacher to go to the disciples. Okay, so disciples came to teachers. The teachers didn't go to the disciples. It just didn't happen. It was unheard of. But Jesus, unlike John and the other rabbis of the day, Jesus didn't wait for people to come to find him. He actually sought out and called his disciples. This alone was just an upside-down, radical thing that he would do. And he would do it not with a question. He wouldn't ask, do you want to be my disciple? He would come with a command. He would say, come, follow me. He'd, he'd be walking along. He'd point to somebody, you, come and follow me. And the other, the, other, uh, the other gospels may add a little bit more to this, a little bit of background that maybe they had heard him preach, maybe they had heard about who he was, but Mark doesn't leave us with any of that because he wants to point to the fact of the power of Jesus' command to come 
follow me. And they immediately responded. So Jesus wasn't going to be a lone prophet wandering around in the desert proclaiming things. Instead, he was a leader. And his task as a Messiah was to create a community of followers. We would call that now a church. But that's what Jesus was in the business of doing. He was creating a community of people that would follow after him. Now, uh, Peter and Andrew, it says the little detail that they were casting their nets from the shore. Now, I don't know uh, all of your guys' backgrounds, but I don't think any of us here would fish by throwing a net off the shore for a living. But that's what these two brothers did. And then the other two brothers, it says that they were in a boat and that they left their father and their other workers. So there's actually a distinction between economic status between these two sets of brothers. So Peter and Andrew were likely poor, whereas uh, John and James, the sons of Zebedee, they had a boat and they had workers. So to bring this uh, up to the 21st century, these four were blue-collar workers. They worked in the trades, let's say renovations. And uh, Peter and Andrew, they would be driving a 1980s Ford with rusted-out uh, fenders, and they would have only master craft tools because they were cheap and they had a lifetime warranty so they could get them replaced. And they were a crew of two. They only did residential renovations. That's all that they could do. That's all that they could afford. Whereas John and James, they ran Zebedee Incorporated. They drove a 2019 GMC Denali with all of the features jacked up. They had brand new Makita tools. And they had contracts for the best commercial businesses in town. Because they had the manpower. They had the people that could do it. And they were running daddy's business for him. But both sets of these people, they were both fishermen. Yes, they had different economic statuses. But they both, as soon as Jesus came up to them and said, you come follow me, they don't hesitate. They leave it behind. The two leave their nets there. The other two get out of the boat and say, see you, dad, we're, we're heading off. And they start following after Jesus. So they would turn, Jesus said, from fishermen to fishers of men. They would be people who would go after people. They would seek out and make disciples, just as Jesus was doing. So that's our first uh, passage, Mark 1, 16 to 20. Our second is Mark 2, 13 to 17. So again, I'll give you a second to swipe over there, or it'll be up on the, the screen behind me. So Mark 2, 13 to 17. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So in between these two, Jesus has picked up a whole bunch of other disciples that Mark doesn't uh, even tell us about. But then in 16, he goes on to say, When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, we can think about this from our 21st century perspective and we think tax collector, okay, this guy works for the CRA. I almost said CIA, that'd be more interesting. But to the CRA, this guy works for the government and I, I, uh, I wouldn't ask for a show of hands or anything, but who likes to pay their taxes? 
well, no, but we all like roads and hospitals, and we get all that. We, we have to pay taxes. That makes sense to us. So if we think of Levi as a CRA agent, eh, he's okay, but like, do you, do you pretend like he's the worst person in the world? Probably not. I even have a friend who works, uh, who used to work for the CRA during the collections department, so I learned a lot more about it, and I, I even forgave him for that. But uh, I'm just kidding. He's a great guy. He explained how it all works. They're very nice people. But Levi, being a tax collector, was a very odd choice for a disciple. And the reason for this isn't just because taxes are unpopular, but actually back then, tax collectors worked for the oppressive governments. And the way it worked is they were essentially toll collectors at uh, toll booth stations that were never there before the Roman government came in. So imagine for me, if you would, Canada gets invaded. I don't know why. I don't know by who. I'm not going to blame a nation. But we get invaded. We get taken over by another nation. And now, instead of just being able to drive to Kelowna, just by driving through, now you have a checkpoint along the way. And just for good measure, there's one on the way down to Karameas, and then there's one on Highway 3. So no matter where you go trying to leave Penticton, if you're going somewhere, you have to pay a toll. And now these toll collectors are collecting tolls you've never had to pay before. And they don't put up their prices. They just charge whatever they want, not telling you uh, what you're actually supposed to pay, and then they keep the difference. They give all the tolls that they're supposed to to the oppressive government. And these aren't the oppressive government soldiers. They're just backed by them. These are actually your neighbors. These are your neighbors here in, in the Okanagan. These are people that work for the government. Okay, now, are they a little less popular than that CRA agent? Probably. Because they're people that either out of desperation, uh, they couldn't find any other work, or maybe they were just greedy and wanted a lot of money and wanted a way of getting after it from their neighbors. Whatever their reason for going into this line of work, they're people that are working for the man that's against you. They're working for the, uh, the oppressive government that's just trying to take your money. And so Levi was a very weird choice because he instantly would have been an unpopular guy. But Jesus still points at him and says, you, come and follow me. So he goes after this guy, this Levi, and it shows that Jesus isn't interested in the most devout. He's not interested in the one that, uh, that everyone else would pick. He's interested in calling whoever he wants. And so there's many other disciples that Jesus has following him that, that Mark doesn't record. But it shows that these disciples that he called, they didn't have any special preparation. They were just regular guys that would just be around doing their regular work. And Jesus would say, you come and follow me. And they would leave what they were doing and follow after him. So it's a reminder that Jesus calls ordinary people to do extraordinary things. So the four fishermen and one tax collectors now, as the disciples that Mark has mentioned, as well as the other, many others that aren't recorded, now on our next passage, we move over to where Jesus selects his 12 special followers. He calls them apostles. And in Mark 3, 13 to 18, that's where we read it. So it says, Jesus went up on a mountainside, and he called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they may be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, 
Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, here's a question that I, that I couldn't get a succinct answer to because commentators are people that sit in their, their studies too long and they just study through the Bible over and over and over again and don't actually talk to people that are living anymore. So they're a little bit of weird guys usually. But they, uh, they can't agree whether Levi was Matthew or if Levi was somebody else. So maybe you've heard someone authoritatively say, Levi, that we, we just looked at, this tax collector, he was later called Matthew. He might be. We know that Matthew was a tax collector. We know that from the other Gospels, but we don't know if he was ever otherwise called Levi. So was Levi Levi or was Levi Matthew? I don't know. We'll know one day in heaven and we can ask Jesus, but there's no consensus. But even if Levi was just put in here, not because he was an apostle but because he was just a disciple that Jesus called. Mark wants to point out that Jesus called disciples from all different kinds of walks of life, and they answered him. Not everyone said yes. We don't, we don't necessarily know that everyone said yes, but we know that Jesus picked all kinds of people to come and follow after him. And at this point, it doesn't say how many people follow after him. It could have been hundreds of people that were following Jesus around. But out of that, Jesus picks 12 special disciples that would be, the close, would be close to him and that he called them apostles. And so the, uh, the first five that we looked at, the four fishermen and then Levi is the tax collector, when, uh, when Jesus calls them, the, the fishermen are giving up their time, they're giving up their, their time in the trades, but the one thing that you can't take away from a trades worker is their experience. They might lose their tools, they might lose their stuff, but they have the knowledge and they have the skills and they can go back. But Levi, as a tax collector, it was a government position. If he left it, that was it. He couldn't go back and say, well, I used to be a tax collector, would you accept me? They would ask him, well, what happened? Well, I just got up and left. Like, he'd have no resume. He'd have no ability to go back. So Jesus would call people to give up various things. Some people, it would be uh, something that would be fairly easy or... It's not that easy to leave your trade, but it's something that he'd call you to do. Somebody else, maybe they're asking him to give up absolutely everything. His whole career, everything, he could never go back. So Levi's sacrifice in some ways is more significant than the others. But the others could go back to fishing. And they actually do do that after Jesus died. The fishermen, they go back to Jesus. After Jesus dies, they don't know what else to do. So they say, well, let's go fishing. And so they do. But some of Jesus' interactions with these people shows us some very clear things, and, uh, including how the, uh, how the Pharisees reacted to Jesus and asked him why he's hanging out with all of these tax collectors and sinners. And so we learn a few different things. The first is that Jesus preaches repentance to people. And the meanwhile, as he's preaching repentance, he befriends them. So he doesn't necessarily stand on a soapbox and say, you need to repent, and then hates them and is mad at them. No, instead he, he says, you need to repent. Now will you be my friend and hang out with me at the same time? So he's preaching this out of relationship with them. And so it actually shows that people don't need something uh, to do something before God loves them. God loves them already. Jesus wants to be their friends with them. And of course, because he loves them, he wants to be in relationship and he wants them to repent but he loves them first. 
And the second is that Jesus doesn't condone sinful lifestyles. But he does show that people and their lifestyles can be transformed. So sometimes we have a, we have a concern that maybe if I hang out with people that drink or party or do these things, that I'll be lumped in as one of them. That maybe they will make me more like that. And so instead, maybe sometimes we insulate ourselves so that we are only friends with people who are like us. Maybe we're only friends with people who go to church, who believe the same things, the exact same things as us. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus actually went and found sinners, found people that were so unlike him. And he actually got accused uh, for being a drunkard and uh, like someone that would party all the time. And uh, Jesus never got drunk, but he was associating with people that would party and would drink and would do these things. And so he got lumped in. But he showed that you can be friends with people like this without giving into that lifestyle. And so the third thing is that Jesus makes no distinction between people. Even when we were talking about earlier about the two different brothers, the two different sets of fishermen, two were on the poor end, two were on the more lucrative end. Jesus treats them the same. He has the same command, come and follow me. The class distinctions that we make is something that Jesus totally rejects. He rejects classification and ranking systems. He says, come and follow after me. He says that to everyone. And the the fourth thing is that Jesus isn't afraid of being contaminated by sinners or by lepers even. Lepers were people with a contagious skin disease and he wouldn't worry about being contaminated by them. Instead, he actually was the opposite. He cleansed them with the power of God's grace and his love. And so Jesus wasn't afraid of being contaminated by people because he knew who he was. He knew who his father was. And so he wasn't worried he was going to get swayed by somebody else's philosophy or somebody else's lifestyle because he knew who he was and who he was following after. And there's something really interesting that happens with his call of these disciples because there's a huge difference between being around Jesus and actually truly being with Jesus. Because Jesus, all throughout his ministry, uh, in the different Gospels, it talks about the crowds that followed after Jesus. After Jesus did one of the miracles that we'll get to later, I'm sure, he feeds 5,000 men and countless women and children. And then uh, the next time he sees them, he says, why are you following after me? It's basically because I gave you a free meal. And so then in John, he talks about uh, that he is the bread of life. And it was a hard teaching. And even some of his disciples left him after that. And so Jesus, he, he was uh, totally fine with people being near him. But there's a huge difference between be, just being near Jesus and actually being with Jesus. And actually being in relationship with him. And so Jesus welcomes everyone, but he calls them to something deeper. So Jesus calls people, come on out, check it out, come out, be near me. But then as they are near him, he challenges them more and more and more. And that's what discipleship is about. All churches should be welcoming places. Churches should be places where anyone can come. Anyone of any lifestyle, no matter how they dress, as long as they come and they're willing to be a part of it, they're welcome. But then they're challenged and say, this Jesus is real. And he calls you to something deeper. And sometimes that's uncomfortable and people get upset and they leave or they get mad. But that's what the call of Jesus is. He says, come on, check it out. 
But then let's go deeper. And that deeper is not always easy, but that's the path of discipleship. It starts on the peripheral of Jesus, and then as you get closer to Jesus, it gets, takes more and more and more commitment. And in some ways, it gets harder as our sinful selves fights against it. But many leave, but the few who remain go deep with Jesus. They truly learn who he is. And that's what a true church community is about. It's not just about a group of people that get together and hang out and say, Yay, Jesus. That's a great thing. And we could have a crowd of a thousand people doing that. And it's wonderful and it's emotional. It's awesome. But if there's never a time when we go deep with Jesus, that we actually learn about him, that we actually learn to conform to who he is and actually become more and more like him, then it's just showing up and being around Jesus. And what's the point of that? It's about going deep with him. And so being a church is so much more than just attending a a public worship service once a week. It's about spending time in relationship with other people. It's about having a group that you're accountable to. And that's something that's difficult sometimes, that we we reject that accountability. We want to just kind of be a little bit anonymous. We don't want people to really know the dark sides of us. We don't want people to know the tough stuff we're dealing with. But that's what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to go deep with him. And so the crowd had been following after Jesus. And out of that crowd, Jesus prayerfully picks 12 people to be not only his disciples, but his apostles. His closest disciples. And he would actually give them authority. And this authority, it says, is to be responsible to preach and to cast out demons. And last week, we we looked uh, at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And Mark, very quickly, in a few short sentences, talked about how he was tempted for 40 days by the enemy of mankind, of the enemy of your soul, Satan. And he overcame him. And Jesus gives that same authority and that same power to these apostles. He says, you can tell demons to go away, and they'll go away. That's an amazing power that he has. And remember, were were these... extraordinary people no they were people like you and I they were plain ordinary people that just lived their lives until they met Jesus and then he called them to do extraordinary things so Jesus can pass this power on to his disciples and to his followers because he has the authority to do that he has the authority over the spiritual realm now following after Jesus isn't just all the perks It's not just all the power that he has to give, but it's actually sharing in his toil and in his suffering as well. Jesus shared in the, or his disciples would have shared in the harassment of the crowds, the people that were were trying to get close to him just so they could touch him so that he would heal them. They would share in the same bitter drink of suffering that Jesus would suffer, of being misunderstood, of being misaligned and being, going against him. And so these 12 Uh, were called out to serve Jesus and to serve people because God wants human cooperation. God doesn't need humanity, but he wants humanity. He wants us to follow after him. He wants to touch us, to touch our lives, to enlighten us, and to help us, enable us to heal other people. It's like a person with a dry and weary throat that has found the source of water that tastes extraordinary. It's bringing other thirsty people to that fountain and saying, I know where there's more. Maybe you can take a water bottle with you, but you have to bring people back to that source. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. 
So once again, what is so special about these 12 people, these 12 guys that were called? These 12 were far from perfect. I could, I could go on for an hour about all of the things that they mess up with, but a few examples. Peter, who Jesus calls the rock, he argues with Jesus, and then when he's, uh, on the night when he's betrayed, he abandons him and denies him three times. James and John, these sons of thunder, are rude and arrogant, and they want places of honor beside Jesus. They want to sit at his right hand and his left hand on the throne when he's the king of Israel. And they also want to, want to blast the Samaritans. They want to call down fire from heaven to kill these people that they are racist against. And uh, the disciples, in all of their ignorance, their weakness, and their frailty, they slowly, step by step, learn what it means to follow after Jesus and to work together with him to extend his ministry to the world. And it's being so ordinary, it's messing up, it's being normal people, that is what makes them so extraordinary for the choice that they would be the people that would spread the gospel to the world. They would be the people called to fulfill the Great Commission, to make disciples of people throughout all nations. So Jesus calls ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Now, Jesus preaches to the crowds all throughout his ministry. He preaches to crowds. He does great teaching. The Sermon on the Mount, there were tons of people there. He preaches messages to the crowds. But notice when he calls people to follow after him, he does it on the small, individual, intimate level. He doesn't shout from the top of the mountain, come and follow me. And he goes up to them and he says, you, come and follow me. So Jesus would teach the crowds, but in the individual parts, he would call people to follow after him, one-on-one. And so Mark, through this, through this call, this intimate call, if you follow me, this command, he shows the power of Jesus that these disciples can see and the obedience that they show right away. God speaks things, and things happen. Now, one of the, uh, one of the distinctions here also between uh, Jewish rabbis that would have disciples and Jesus, as the rabbis, when they would have disciples, they would say, well, they, they're their disciples, but they would say, come and help, uh, and I will help you follow God. But Jesus didn't say, come and follow God as I follow God. He says, no, come and follow me. Jesus, even through that, is pointing out that he is God. And so he doesn't have to say, come and follow God with me. He just says, come and follow me, because I am God, and I am getting there. We'll go there together. We will, we will build the kingdom. And so Jesus, as the bringer of the kingdom of heaven, has unique power as God's son. And his powerful call still transforms lives, even today. And so Jesus expects immediate obedience. He doesn't say, will you come and follow me, please? No, it's a command. It says, come and follow me. And commands can be either obeyed or denied, but they can't be avoided. You can't just go around it like it's a question. A command is either obeyed or denied. And so other religions throughout the world, every other world religion is about man seeking after God. But Christianity alone, this following after Jesus, is about God seeking after man. Jesus has the one who's taken the initiative to come down and call us to follow after him. God has taken the step for humanity to be reconciled. And we are left with a choice of whether to obey or to disobey. And so the will of God is to make the kingdom of heaven real. It's breaking into our reality. 
Sometimes it's hard to see. Sometimes it's something that we don't think, but it's invading human history, even as we speak. The kingdom of heaven is coming. It is near and it is here. But this happens through the will of God. And we often talk about that what we are doing is building the kingdom of God. But I think it's actually a little bit of bad theology to say that because God is building the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't rely on human beings to do it, but he does invite us to be a part of it. Because all throughout, since the very beginning of the creation, God has been the one with the promised plan of redemption that he is bringing about. And it has never depended upon human beings. Because the covenant that God created with, between him and Abraham, God was the one who was on the line. Abraham obeyed, but even if he didn't, God would have made it happen. So God's bringing the kingdom of heaven here to earth doesn't depend on us but your participation with it does depend on you. Do you want to be a part of what God is doing? Or do you want to be separate from what God is doing? That's the invite that Jesus has for us when he says, come and follow me. It's to participate in what he is doing in the world. It's to participate in his redemption plan. So if we want to be part of what God is doing in the world then we have to respond to what Jesus has said, which is, come and follow me. So the calling of his first disciples, Jesus shows that one, first of all, must not only repent and believe the gospel, that's the first step. We must repent of our sins and believe the gospel, that he has died and rose again so that we may be saved. But then we must be ready to leave wherever we were and to follow after Jesus. That's what these disciples did. They left what they were doing. They left family, they left friends, they left careers, and they followed after Jesus. So to be a disciple means that you accept Jesus' commands unconditionally. You don't say, well, Jesus, that's nice, but I wanted this. You don't say, well, Jesus, what you're saying is a little too hard. Can I have it a different way? Jesus requires absolute obedience and sacrifice. Not because he needs our help, but because he wants you to be a participant in it. So in Mark, discipleship isn't a part-time volunteer opportunity. It was a full-time life's work of following after Jesus. Now, uh, in the skipping ahead to Acts and etc., there were people who were full-time disciples of Jesus who had other careers. They had other things that they did. Paul, for example, he was a missionary. He would go all over the world, but he'd usually stay somewhere for a period of time, and a lot of the time he worked for a living. So he'd be making tents during the day and preaching the gospel at night. And so his full life was about being a follower of Jesus, but he still had a day job. And so it's not saying that everyone has to be full-time committed to full-time ministry, but it's even if you're a teacher, even if you're retired, even if you're whatever, you're still a full-time disciple even if you don't get paid for it. And that's what Jesus calls to. But what keeps us from this discipleship is this fatal illusion that what our need, real needs are just physical. You know, often what we're praying for is our physical needs. I need enough money to get, uh, pay the rent. I need enough. I need to be healthy in order so that I can do this. But our needs are so much beyond our physical we're, we're beings that are so much more than physical. We're f physical, emotional, intellectual, spiritual beings. 
we have so much more to us than our physical, but often the physical is urgent, and we think, well, I'm not feeling very good, like me right now, boo-hoo. But I have other needs. I have spiritual needs, and we'll ignore those often, but the spiritual realm is what Jesus truly calls us to. And yes, maybe he'll give us what we need physically. Maybe he'll heal us perfectly. But our true and deepest needs are to be in relationship with him and to follow after him. And so rather than having the self-centered concern for our material security, he calls us to have our confidence that God will provide. He'll give us what we need each and every day. And then another part of discipleship is that Jesus is going somewhere. He's not passively sitting around waiting for us to do what we need to do. He's already made the initiative. He's already at work here in Penticton. He's moving. The Spirit of God doesn't sit still. It's moving. It's living. It's active. And we as disciples are required to follow after wherever Jesus is going, wherever he's at work. So Mark isn't just about theoretical ideas. It's not just about uh, learning more about Jesus. There's this balance between action and learning. And as, as followers of Jesus, we're called to be people of action and be people of learning. Sometimes all we do is learn. We just go to Bible study after Bible study, and we fill our heads with knowledge, but we don't act on that knowledge. Or sometimes there's people that are so excited about the mission of Jesus that they say, I don't need to learn. I'm just going to go and do ministry. And they go and do it. And there's been movements in the world where people have uh, felt called to be missionaries, and they think, I don't need to learn the language. I'll just go over there, and whatever will happen will happen. Some of, them, uh, some of the times it's worked. Some of the times they've just wasted their time and money going overseas because they haven't prepared for ministry. So there's a balance here between preparation and action. And Jesus shows us that he taught along the way. So he said, follow after me, and I'll teach you as we go. Now, uh, this difference between knowledge and action, there was, uh, in Princeton Seminary, they were teaching about uh, the Good Samaritan. So the story about, uh, there was a man who was, uh, who was hurt, he was probably Jewish, and uh, priests uh, and rabbis passed him, prophets passed him, because uh, it was a, a day of feast, and so if they touched him, he seemed like he was dead, they might be unclean, and then they wouldn't be able to participate in the festival. But this Samaritan person, this person who, didn't, uh, who him and Jews didn't get along, was the one who stopped and helped this person. It's a, great, uh, it's a great parable that Jesus teaches, and I can't do it justice, but there was these seminary students that were learning to become pastors and missionaries and all these things, and they got taught this in class, they had a lecture on it, and then they were told to go across uh, the campus to this other place, and they were supposed to speak on it as much as they could. But they didn't know that the, the teachers had planted somebody along the way, along the path, that looked like he was beat up, that looked like he needed help. And they were told before they leave, you better hurry up because you're already a couple minutes late. You better go, you better go. And they went one at a time. And do you know that only 40% of those students who had just learned about the Good Samaritan and how you should help and how Jesus calls us to help people, only 40% of them stopped because they were so busy going to teach other people about God that they didn't do what God called them to do. You know, it's a, and it's, a, it's a nice little story. And you can go, oh, those seminarians, you know, they get their heads too full of knowledge, those pastor training. But we do that often, don't we? Sometimes we're too busy doing the things of God to do what God is actually calling us to do. Or maybe we're too busy doing our own thing that we don't want to do what God calls us to do. Now, Jesus calls everyone to be near him. He welcomes everyone. 
Jesus is so welcoming. But all the while, he's challenging people to go deeper. So the radical call of Jesus is that he's calling ordinary people to do extraordinary things. He says, come and, after, come and follow after me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, you don't have to be an extraordinary person to do extraordinary things, because Jesus is extraordinary. Jesus will do it. He will use the ordinary, the plain, the simple. And this is a, this is a simple call of Jesus, come and follow after me. But it's so challenging. It takes everything you have to follow after Jesus. It's rewarding, but it takes great sacrifice. Leaving the comfortable day-to-day life, the decisions of I do what I want to do, whatever I want to do it kind of life, to waking up in the morning and saying, Jesus, what would you have me do today? Set aside my agenda, set aside my schedule, and what do you want me to do today, Jesus? That's what he's calling us to do. That's the call of Jesus to be an ordinary radical. So as the, the worship team comes up, I think she's going to be able to come. I can see her. There's a glass through there. So I want to ask you, what will you do? What will you choose to do with the command of Jesus to come and follow him? Maybe you'd say, well, I am following Jesus. I, I've been a follower of Jesus for, for more years than this young guy's been alive. But whatever it is, there, I believe that Jesus challenges us to something, even just little simple tasks of obedience every single day. And whether or not you're a follower of Jesus yet, I think he's calling you. He's calling you to relationship in him. And so I want to give three practical ways to act on it this morning. The first is to read. If you haven't started, then start. But if you have already started, then keep reading the Gospel of Mark. I think the the Spirit of God moves so powerfully through the Word of God that when you read the Bible, it will come alive to you. And the second is to pray. What is Jesus calling you to do? I think he's calling all of us to do something. And maybe the best way of speaking it most of the time is through reading your Bible. And you have something that maybe hits you right between the eyes and be like, I should be doing that. And then thirdly, pretty simple and hard, is obey. Whatever Jesus calls you to do, answer yes to that call. I'm not saying it'll be easy, but it'll be so worth it. So as we, uh, as we start worshiping here, let me, uh, let me just pray for us. Father God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your call in our lives. And I thank you for the way that you sent Jesus and you inspired Mark to write this gospel for us, to learn and to grow and to be challenged. And I thank you that you call us ordinary people, each man and woman and child that is here in this building today and all throughout all the churches in Penticton around the world, you are calling us to follow after you. And so I pray for those who haven't yet put their faith, hope, and trust in you, Jesus, that they would take one step closer to you, that maybe they would explore more of who you are, that maybe they would pick up a Bible and read it. And for those who are, who are already in relationship with you, Jesus, I pray that if there's any areas of disobedience in their lives, that they would set those aside and follow after you, and that we would be bold and courageous people that would share the hope and the joy that we have from you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.